All right. Um, well, tonight we're going to be, for the most part, in Second Kings um, chapter 15. At least we're going to be in and around Second Kings 15. Um, we're also going to spend some time in Second Chronicles. And tonight there's a, we're going to do a little bit of, of, it's sort of a transitional night, because we're, we're getting close to uh, getting into some of, the, some of the bigger prophets, particularly Isaiah. Um, you'll, you'll recall maybe that the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is obviously a prophet to the southern kingdom, so he's a prophet to Judah. And um, if you look in your, in your little packet uh, toward the back, we have the, the list of kings. And I want you to just look there real quick um, that you'll see uh, on the right-hand side is a list of the kings of Judah. And you're going to see there Uzziah, who is on uh, right there, probably at the middle, really close to the middle of that right-hand column, Uzziah. And you have Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. And so these uh, four kings, if you remember the first verse in the book of Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So that's you know, probably some, I mean, for Isaiah, he's a prophet for some 60 or so years into the southern kingdom. And so we're getting really close to him. We're getting really close to, um, to Hosea, who's a prophet of the north, who's going to go to, to Israel. And he's, he's going to prophesy right at the time when the northern kingdom is ready to collapse. He's sort of the last straw, basically, for the, for the northern kingdom. And so we're getting really close to some of those prophets. And so as we get particularly to the south, as we start dealing with the events of Jotham, particularly Ahaz and Hezekiah, we're going to spend a good bit of time going through the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah will become another source for us as we go through some of that, and so that we can kind of understand the book of Isaiah as well, and how it's organized, and the, all the historical settings and things like that. And, um, and, uh, and talk about some, some issues there. So that, that'll be, you know, that, that'll be in the next few weeks. And so tonight we're going to kind of look at how these kings are uh, rapidly uh, turning around, especially in the north. As, you get, as we get closer to landing the plane in the northern kingdom where they're going to be taken off the, off the face of the earth, basically, they're going to be led off into captivity into Assyria, um, and we're going to go back to then just having the one kingdom in the south for a little while. Uh, as we get closer to that, obviously ki the kings are going to kind of speed up a little bit. The, the rotation through the kings is going to speed up. The uh, rapid descent into evil is going to speed up. The amount of prophets that are going to come along and are preaching to the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom are, are also going to speed up. There's going to be a lot of those. So, you know, we, we've still got tons of prophets left to cover and we've only got about 140 years or so to do it in, so, <laughs> which sounds like forever to us. But, um, but you know, so it's, um, it, it's, you, know, you, you can see that God's sending along these prophets um, to the, the north and south as they get closer to judgment. And so I want us to spend a little bit of time uh, in really two places tonight. One is with Uzziah. And just talk about who he is and, and what he did for the southern kingdom and why that, that is actually, he's actually a, a really good king for the most part. And then switching gears after that, go back to the north and look at just this revolving door of kings that flow in and out of the kingdom and how tumultuous it's starting to get as things get, uh, we're in a rapid descent towards destruction. And so, um, before we do that, just remember where we've been the last couple of times. Uh, remember Jeroboam II, so Jeroboam II, he's wicked, he's a wicked king, but if he had been allowed to just continue in wickedness, and if God had judged him for his wickedness, then the northern kingdom would already have collapsed. But the Lord was gracious to him, and allowed him to just be sustained and actually even blessed him, gave him back some of the lands that, Israel, that the northern kingdom had lost. Remember, Jeroboam 2 is in the north. Jeroboam 1 is in the, is in the north too, but 
Uh, Jeroboam, too, is in the north. He's an evil king. But in spite of all that, God still is able to, it, it blesses him. And it's during this time, uh, around the time of Jeroboam, the second, where both Jonah and Amos become prophets. Jonah it goes, actually, he, he's a prophet to Jeroboam. And then he actually becomes a prophet to the nation of Assyria. So he goes to Assyria, and you all know that. He gets spit out by a fish and all the all the, the rigmarole that we spent in last week. And then we've got Amos, who also prophesied to the northern kingdom. Remember, Amos talks to all the nations that are around Israel before he finally hones in on Israel and condemns them for all their worth because of their idolatry and their wickedness. And so um, both of those prophets are right around this time frame. And it's, I, I can't emphasize enough, anytime you go into a book of the prophets, it is really helpful if you've got maybe an ESV Bible or an ESV study Bible. There's a bunch of them. NIV study Bible would be one, too. There's, a, there's several of them that right at the beginning of those books, they'll usually give a paragraph or so that details when this prophet was. It's helpful to put the prophet in the time period that they were prophesying in because it, it helps make a lot of the images that they use make a lot more sense um, because you, you kind of know what historical situation is going on. So that's really all we're trying to do is put them in their context and help make sense of what's going on. And you remember when Amos is preaching to the northern kingdom, not only are they wicked, but they're actually taking the poor who have, are, are, you know, have to go to trial, basically, and they're putting them in, in slavery. And sometimes it's sexual slavery, sometimes it's just outright slavery, and they're not giving them, one, a day in court to actually prove their case, and then they're also not, uh, they're not allowing them to get free of debt. They're just constantly in a place of debt. That's not Israel, by the way. Um, you, you've heard of the year of Jubilee? What is the year of Jubilee? What is that? Yes. So, so yeah, the, 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 the 50th year when, so after seven sevens, basically, the land would be given back to its original owner, the debts would be dissolved, and the servants would be set free. Unless a servant wanted to stay, in which case he could, but uh, they, there, were, there were provisions in the law for that, but otherwise he'd be set free. And, and you think, well, why would they do that? That, that seems kind of crazy, right? That you would just either turn all your workers loose or, and give the land that you possess back to its original owner. But you have to remember, the land is not yours. That's the premise of Israel. The land is not yours. It belongs to the Lord, and it's on loan to you. As Bob reminded us for the last 13 weeks in, uh, on Sunday morning, uh, not this past week, the week before and, and before that, that we're stewards, we're managers. And, and you can look no further than the land of Israel to see that, that God had set up his community so that they understood, you are not owners, you are renters. This is my land, and I'm letting you have it. And so when he divided the land between either Benjamin or Judah, and then subdivided it between families within those clans, or those tribes, that was the Lord's land that he was giving to your family, to sustain your family. And so if you fell into, into poverty, where you had to give up your land, it was to be given back to you after a certain period of time, because that was, that's the Lord's land that he had given to your family. And so it wasn't really right. You, you even see that in, in, uh, ba back when we were in Ahab, where Ahab tries to buy this man's vineyard, and then he steals it from him, where... where that's not normally a thing that people do. There were land transactions, sure, but that's not normally a thing that people would do. So. Um, so when you take a poor person and you put them in slavery and you never turn them loose, and that's a, a big point of contention with Amos as he comes to prophesy against the northern kingdom for the, the crimes that they've committed. So we're turning to the south now, and we've got this king who goes by two names— one name is Uzziah, and the, uh, which is, that's the name you probably know him better by. And then the other name is Azariah, which the author of 2 Kings calls him. And, and in 2 Kings, the passage is just really short for Uzziah. But he actually did quite a bit, and the book of Chronicles clues us in to some other things that Uzziah did. 
And this, again, I'm going to reiterate some things in, in, in the book of Isaiah that are, are helpful when we think about Uzziah. Because remember, Isaiah comes onto the scene and is prophesying really close to the end of Uzziah's reign as king. And so um, he co-reigned with his father. Remember, Uzziah is put on the throne when he's 16 years old. His father, Amaziah, is probably 14 years old, 13 or 14 when Uzziah is born. So, very young, right? This is a very young family. So, his father is somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, 29 or so, whenever Uzziah comes onto the throne. Well, the only solution to that, because it, it, the Bible tells us that Uzziah reigned for 52 years, and the only way to make sense of the actual chronology there of the years is that he co-reigned with his dad. So that's the best way to actually solve that problem. So very early on in his dad's reign, Uzziah actually comes to the throne as well and begins to reign at 16 years old. His dad's still alive, and Uzziah is also on the throne. How do we know that's what happened? Well, if you look at 2 Chronicles 26, verse 1, we see this. This is not normal, but look at this. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. So Amaziah has some governing authority. He's officially king in the sense that he's still alive. But the part that makes this abnormal is that the people make him king. This isn't his dad lived and then was buried with his fathers, and then his son Uzziah reigned in his place, which is what we normally see. That's not what we see here. The people took Uzziah and made him king when he was 16 years old. So that tells you that there's some sort of overlap. The dad's still alive. Uzziah comes onto the throne. They're both kind of reigning. But this is also the point where Amaziah starts to go off and he gets captured and he lives in captivity for a little while before he comes back and then he's run off by his people and eventually killed. And so Uzziah is on the throne. He's made, he's appointed to be king by the people. So that tells us immediately there is a co-regency there where Uzziah is king uh, in accordance with the people's will. Now, it also, we also see that he built the city of Eloth. You'll see it Eloth or Elath. But, it, but he built the city of Eloth, and he waited until his dad died before he built it. And the reason that that's important is because why else would a son, why would it say he waited until his dad died to build it? Unless he was co-reigning with his dad, he had thought he wanted to build the city of Eloth, and he waited until his dad died to actually do it. So they're both sitting on the throne at about the same time. And his dad had only been king for a handful of years before he actually comes to the throne. So um, he waited until after his father's death, and that gives you the clear impression um, that Uzziah, what, uh, Uzziah's building of this was contingent upon his father's death. So they, he's co-reigning. In addition to that, what we also find, and this is pivotal for us understanding who Uzziah is, is that the author of, uh, of Chronicles tells us that Zechariah actually trained him in the fear of the Lord. Look at 2 Chronicles uh, 26, 3-5. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So take a look on the, on the, uh, the list of kings here. Um, you have Amaziah and Uzziah, just so you can see the, the years, so you can help make sense of these. Amaziah is reigning from 796 to 767. That's when he dies. Uzziah is 792 to 740. You see that? that so they, there's a significant overlap where they're, they're together. And, um, and 
Amaziah is ultimately going to be run off and killed by his, by his people when he comes back out of captivity. But part of the reason why this is important is understanding who Uzziah is. Who trained him? Who raised him? Who does it say raised him? Zechariah. Who is Zechariah? Do we remember who Zechariah is? Anybody? No? There was... Yeah, there, there, there is one, but this isn't him. Zechariah is a priest. And Zechariah is the one that Amaziah, the father of Uzziah, actually killed. Remember this? He's killed between the altars. Uzziah's dad, Amaziah, killed Zechariah. That's part of the reason the people hated him, is because he killed Zechariah. So the people, so if you look at the years here, Zechariah is killed, we know, in 797 BC. Zechariah is the priest is killed in 797 BC. Look at the look at the kings here. Uh, Amaziah is in that's one of the first things that he does. Amaziah here kills him in 796. That puts the people at um, at his throat. And so um, they're going to end up hating him, but four years later, they take Uzziah and put him on the throne, right? To Korain. You, you, you tracking with me? So what we know is that Zechariah raised and trained this young son in the fear of the Lord. Otherwise, he would follow after his dad. For his right. first 14 years of life. Right. For his first 11 years of life. 11. Yeah, is what it works out to. The math works out to 11 years. When he's 11 years old... Uh, Zechariah is put to death. About, about there, somewhere around there. Yes, David. Right. So this is the befuddling thing about kings, is that, um, that they're often judged for part of their life, and it's often pointed out, look, he followed after the Lord, but he didn't do these things. So murdering priests and tearing down high places, none of them in the north did. But, um, but Amaziah, will rem- you'll remember, even when you go back to the, the um, proclamation of Amaziah, it's not altogether negative. So, but what he does do is he gets haughty, and he starts attacking the northern king, or the, the uh, I'm trying to think now, uh, ta- attacks the northern king. And when he does that, the northern king beats down the army, Takes, them, takes him in captivity, brings him down to Jerusalem, watch Jerusalem collapse, then hauls him off into captivity in the north. Remember that? So even though he's morally not uh, totally defunct, he listens to the prophet, and he doesn't take the army from the north with him into battle. Even in spite of that, he also does a lot of things that are, that are worthless and wicked, basically. So it's a... It's a complex tapestry, is what, we're, what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, partial credit is a good way to put it, yeah. So, um, but Uzziah, the point is, Uzziah is trained in righteousness, not by his dad, but by the priest. And so Uzziah is going to be, um, he's going to be basically judged in, uh, in accordance with what Zechariah had, had really taught him. Um, so, that's part of the picture of Uzziah. Here is a kid who, who knows better, all right? He, he, knows, he knows what to do. That's good, and so we would expect good things from him, right? And we do. We get those things. But, but here's the problem with Uzziah, as we're going to see, is that there's, there's, there's humility, and then when you're trained in righteousness and you grow, then there's, you've got to watch out on the other side, there's the ditch on the other side of the road, which is pride and arrogance. And Uzziah is going to fall into the other ditch. So it's like the kings are always falling into one ditch or the other. It's either they totally reject the Lord, or they go so far as to just fall into the other ditch of pride and arrogance. And so he's trained by Zechariah. We know that he, he knows what is right. And he starts to do things that are right. He does really well. And, his, and his, even as the chronicler tells us, look, every time he followed after the Lord, the Lord blessed him. All right? So he reorganizes and he enlarges Judah's army uh, until it consisted of more than 300,000 well-trained men. 
and provided them with the most up-to-date hardware, including both siege engines that permitted the scaling of enemy walls and platforms which men could lob projectiles into enemy cities. Look at this in 2 Chronicles 26, 11-15. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers in, uh, in the muster made by Jael, the secretary of Messiah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of his father's houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under the command of the army was 307,500 who could make war with mighty power uh, to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and, uh, and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. So he was an inventor. The Leonardo da Vinci of his time, if you will, uh, used his prowess to invent all kinds of machines like turrets, that fired machine guns from the tops of the towers to kill all the enemies, and then little engines that could get up on top of the towers and fling stones. And we're not talking about uh, David and Goliath stones. We're talking, you know, trebuchets. You know what I'm talking about? You know what trebuchets are? You load them up and you sling the stone a long way. So we're talking those kinds of things into enemy territory. He's shooting cruise missiles. I mean, this is like advanced hardware here that he's got. Um, All right. So you kind of get this picture of Uzziah. He's following after the Lord. We've got some real promise. Now, what was the significance of the kings of the south and their following after the Lord? What was it they were establishing? Or I should say, what was the Lord establishing? The Lord's establishing his kingdom, right? In fact, spoiler alert, the entire Bible is about God establishing his kingdom. We've been talking a lot about that in Psalms, in Matthew, and my point is that I want you to see it in every single book. It's all about that. The Lord is establishing His kingdom, and He's bringing in His citizens, okay? How is He going to establish His kingdom? Through a king. Well, hey, look at that. We've got one right here. A king. He's got a crown and everything. And his name is Uzziah. So what does it mean then when you have a king who is trained in righteousness and who is living righteously? God's kingdom is being established right here. Why do you think it is that they always run into one ditch or the other? Or they reject the Lord or they go into pride and arrogance? It's because they're men. And the effects of the fall have made it as such that they really can't be the king of God's kingdom the way it needs to be kinged. Because this is the point, Shannon. He does it so that we see the effect of the fall. This, so um, when you get into the New Testament and you start reading the, the letters of Paul, he explains to you, very clearly over and over again. It is so that you understand salvation is by grace and not of yourselves so that no one can boast. The entire Old Testament is proving that over and over and over again. God is going to save you, but He's going to do it in such a way that you understand that it is not of yourself so that you can't boast. You have literally... No ground to say, I brought anything to the conversation of salvation except the dead body that was required to be saved. You understand? The Old Testament is proving that over and over and over and over again. And so here's another king. And he's he's starting to live righteously. And how righteous is he? Not only does he enlarge the armies, he starts to conquer the Philistines. This is how you know, right? So you start reading these books, the Chronicles and the Kings, and you start seeing the kings, they live righteously, and then all of a sudden they start conquering other territories outside. 
Because what is the kingdom of God supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be fruitful, it's supposed to multiply, and it's supposed to fill the earth. The original king, first king, was who? Adam. He's given the same charge. Be fruitful, exercise dominion. That's another one. Exercise dominion. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Adam and Eve's job, essentially given to them from creation, is have kids, let them populate the earth, teach them how to serve the Lord and worship Him, and spread the garden. So here they failed. The kings are established. God calls His people out of Egypt, calls them around Sinai, says, I'm establishing a, a people and we're going we're gonna to do this, okay? You're going to be the one through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, starting with Abraham, right? Through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. That's Jesus, by the way. Paul tells us that. But we don't know that in Exodus, okay? Right now, all we know is, look, it's just the, the people of Israel. And so he starts establishing kings through them, and they show promise, like they're going to do and lead the nation of Israel to do what Adam should have done. Every single one of them falls short, even David. And so they can't quite do it. But that's the promise, is that they're being fruitful and multiplying and fill the earth, and they're teaching the nations around them how to serve and fear God. Right? But So when they're faithful, they start to spread. The, king, the borders start to spread. And so you see, he conquers the Philistines, he conquers the Arabians, the Munites, and the Ammonites, and the Termites, and the Parasites, and all the... All the different nights. He starts conquering all of them. Look at, look at 2 Chronicles 26, 6-9. He went out and made war <coughs> against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod. Uh, and he built, he, he built cities in the territories of Ashdod, that's a Philistine city, and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gurbal and against the Munites. And the Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. So he's growing stronger, he's building things, he's spreading the borders of the kingdom of God. Stop me if you've heard this one, to the ends of the earth. So what happens when Jesus actually sits down on, or actually not sits down, actually is, is taken up? He's established his kingdom, and he tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the neighboring cities? Or where? Where was the third place? Oh, that's right, to the ends of the earth, right? So the kingdom that's been established in Christ once and for all is now in charge of doing the same thing, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth through the proclamation of the gospel so that people come to submit to the king who is on the throne, right? The entire Bible is about that. And so when you understand that, that helps because you get to the book of Revelation and it's really not that complicated. I know that's shocker, right? It's, <laughs> don't hit me with anything. It's really not that complicated. The whole book of Revelation is... Jesus is king. You see that from the very first chapter. Jesus is king. Churches, you're tempted right now to follow the kings of the world and bow down and pay tribute to them and leave Jesus as king. Don't do it. Chapters 4 through 19 or 20 is you're all tempted. All of us Christians are tempted to bow down to the beast. Who's the beast? COVID vaccine? No. It's not. What is, wh what is the beast? It's anyone who would claim to be your Savior. Anyone. Mostly, that's governments. And it's at, spoiler alert, any time. So every Christian is going to be tempted at some point to put your faith, hope, and trust into all your earthly leaders. And you're going to take their mark, which is what 
Again, is it a COVID vaccine? Is it a watch? A watch or a phone that takes your fingerprint or captures your face? No, it's not those things. It's allegiance. That's what your mark is. Your mark is your allegiance to them. And then the mark of Christ, which is in the chapter right after that, in chapter 14, is allegiance to Him. Don't be persuaded. Don't follow. So the whole thing, the book, Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's all about God establishing His kingdom and your temptation to flee from it. But if you're His citizen, you won't. Right? That's the whole thing. Okay. So, if that's the case, so we've just done the whole Bible tonight. I didn't even plan on doing that. There you go. So he's expanding the borders of the kingdom, and, he's, and proof of that is he's conquering the Philistines. But he was not only a destroyer, he was also a builder. So Uzziah goes in, and he becomes a famous builder. He actually starts constructing all kinds of facilities. Look at verse 10. Uh, and he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in the Shephelah and in the plain, and he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and the fertile lands, and he loved, for he loved the soil. Okay. Now, here's the impressive part about verse 10. You think, well, okay, so he's impressive, he's a gardener. Okay, well, but that's not it, all right? Think about this in terms of the kingdom of God. Rewind to the original king of the kingdom all the way back into the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. What do we, what do we have there? Our first king is Adam. He's going to be a steward of what? of the earth. And, and what does he find there? Where is he planted? Where is he put? In the garden. In the garden. And what, did, what is he able to do there? Well, we know from the curse in Genesis 3 that what's going to become more difficult for him is actually growing things. Now, that's a problem, right? So what does that tell us about chapter 1 and 2? It was easy. He had an easy time growing things. It was, there was not really any sweat on his brow. You, you ever tried being a gardener? Andrea and I have black thumbs. Don't let us anywhere near your... Now, in fairness, Andrea is much better at it than I am. She's, she's gotten better over the years. <laughs> she and I are responsible for the murder of no less than three trees. All right? Three big trees. Three expensive trees. And we had no idea why. One of them just snapped off at the base, just fell over. And just, sna- just snapped and just fell over and just like keeled over in our yard. And yeah, and so we, and it was just a stiff breeze that came along in our backyard and just went and knocked it right over. And we had planted that. Turns out we didn't straighten out the root ball and like spread out the roots. Well, it wasn't actually us, but I'll take the blame for it. Fine, whatever. Anyway, so we didn't do that. And so the roots kind of grew around like this. And then all of a sudden it just snapped off the base. It cut off the oxygen supply. So we're, we're responsible for the, the absolute destruction of three trees. We just don't have it, right? It's difficult to actually grow something and make it, you know, work. Not for Adam. Not initially. He didn't get tired. He didn't have any problem growing anything. What do we read about Uzziah? He didn't have any problem growing anything either. But where didn't he have problems growing? Read it. Where are the places that are mentioned? Yeah, what, what's the wilderness? Yeah, when, it's, when we say wilderness, don't think wilderness of a state park in Alabama. It's full of trees and all that kind of stuff. Nope, not wilderness like, like they're talking about. Wilderness like they're talking about is sand and sprigs of grass and things that just don't make for good apple orchards. But not Uzziah. He's got streams in the desert. He's able to go and actually plant things in desert territory and make it grow. Things that people are still studying to this day of things that he did out in the wilderness. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I don't know what they are. Don't ask me. Um, <laughs> um, but what, does, what, is that, what is that reiterating? Oh, man, there's some hope on the horizon. Perhaps Uzziah is that Messiah. It even rhymes. The Messiah Uzziah, maybe, that, that has come along. He's growing things in the desert and the Shephelah. All right. Tragically, however, ugh. So close. 
he meets his demise. Because he thinks to himself, you know, I am pretty good. And the Lord is blessing me. He loves me. He cares for me. I'm practically a priest. So he walks into the temple and he begins to burn incense there. And the priest comes along and goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. What are you doing? You're not supposed to be in here. And he's like, well, you know what? You can just stuff it. And he stays in there. And so God curses him with leprosy until he dies. Yeah, he was close, though. Like, just almost, right? Let's look at it in Second Chronicles 26, 16 to 23. But when he was strong, he grew proud. I fell into the other ditch to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. Now, what is that going to do to him? What is leprosy going to do to him? Yeah. He's going to be unclean. Why is that a big deal? As the king. Yeah. As the king. The king is banished from the presence of the Lord. Stop me if you've heard this one. Yeah? Adam, Eve, removed from the garden. Why? Because of his sin. Turns out, he can't outrun the fall. And they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the son, uh, uh, um, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. And Uzziah slept with his fathers, And they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they they said, he is a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Tragic, tragic ending, but it's because he ignored number 1640 to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah, and his company, as the Lord had said, as the Lord said to him through Moses. Um, all right, so it leads to his demise. Now, you've got in the we turn our attention to the north, where rem, you'll remember that Omri, the the house of Omri, came to an end because Jehu, the general, rebelled and he overthrew the house of Omri. He was appointed as the general to go overthrow the house of Omri. And, um, and so he does, and he's promised a long and prosperous rule. Look at uh, 2 Kings uh, 10, 30. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well, carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done uh, to the house of Ahab according to what is in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne in Israel. So this is the prophecy that has come to the house of Jehu because he has done what the Lord has asked him to do. Uh, he's going to live a long and prosperous uh, Reign and his sons to the fourth generation are going to sit on the throne. All right, not much further though. Uh, <laughs> not at all further. So, since 841 BC, since 841 BC, Jehu has been on the throne through him or through his sons. Now, after nearly 90 years, the last of Jehu's royal house, who is Zechariah, another Zechariah, this is a north, this is a king, this is not a priest. 
Yeah, another, another king, Zechariah, is going to be murdered after only six months in power. So his, his, finally, the fourth son comes on the throne. He's there for six months, and he's murdered. So he does, he follows after Jeroboam, and they all, they really, most everybody does uh, in the north. But, I mean, how much bad can you do in six months, really? Like, there's just not a whole lot recorded about him. Um, and so... Uh, he, he is taken off the throne. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. He did what was evil inside the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, which he made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Iblim uh, and put him to death and, and reigned in his place. Now, the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, you know, are they not written? So, um, he reigns only for six months. So Shalom comes to, comes to the, the throne. And he reigns a whopping one month. A singular month. He is on the throne, and then he is assassinated. Um, and who is he assassinated by? Menachem. Menachem comes to the throne. He is of Tirzah. He murders Shalom, and he reigns. Hey, this is a, this is a good long tenure here. Ten years. He reigns on the throne, which is awesome. And really, really, we only get a couple of things about Menachem. That he taxed the wealthy in order to stave off elimination from Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, we're, we're getting into a, a season where Assyria is going to be pretty awesome. And Assyria is going to come back up under this guy right here, Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, he goes by the name Pull, which is really easy to remember, right? So we'll call him Pool a lot. You'll hear him be referred to as Pool. I like the name Tiglath-Pileser, though. I think I'm somebody that has a baby, you just, the nuns, hey, look, hey, on the horizon, you know, Tiglath-Pileser, all I'm saying. That's a, it's a compelling name, you know. You can call him Tig. You can call him Tig. We can call him Pool. We can call him a number of different things. Tiglath-Pileser is evil, but, you know, you can be, it's okay. It's okay, though. I mean, it's a... The, it's a strong name, you know? <laughs> the, his teachers will never forget him. Yeah. Um, so what does he do? He, he taxed the wealthy. And why does he tax the wealthy? Well, he does it to, because Tiglath-Pileser, Assyria is being built up. They're going to ultimately be the ones that come in and take off the northern kingdom. And when the, when the kings of the north start getting wind that Assyria is really that bad, they're really that awesome, they're going to start trying to figure out ways to escape uh, Assyria's dominance, to just stave off, buy them some time, basically, so that they don't, you know, so they're not killed. And so his big plan is basically raise the taxes on the 1%. <laughs> it's amazing how all these things come back around. <laughs> but raise the taxes on the, on the wealthy, uh, take in all the money, and then just ship off all that money to Assyria so that they... They don't kill him. Basically, a racket is essentially what that is. And so that, that's his big plan. And he does that. Um, and so um, then, obviously, Menachem is succeeded by his son, um, Pekahiah, which is, a great, which is also another good name. I just put that out there, maybe. Um, and then he reigns uh, for two years, and, he is, and he's assassinated by Pekah and a group of Gileadites. Uh, so Pekah, who is a general, comes in and uh, takes over and reigns. And the reason that we want to go through those so fast is because we get down to Pekah, who is going to be the king of the north, Ahaz, who's going to be the king of the south, and Assyria out here is an army that's brewing. And, and this scene, this setting right here, Pekah in the north, Ahaz in the south, we'll, we'll go through um, Jotham in, next week, but he'll be very quick. And then we'll get to Ahaz. You get Pekah in the north, Ahaz in the south, and Assyria is a really strong army out in the east. And that's where we see for unto us, or the, a virgin will give, conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Emmanuel um, in Isaiah chapter 7. This setting right here of these two kings on the throne and Assyria breathing down their necks is the setting for Isaiah chapter 7. And it's, it's helpful to understand not only what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, but also what Matthew 
is saying when he quotes Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7. It's really important, and understanding that the history here is, is, I think, really important for that. So we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But 200 years, um, I want you to think about this for just a second. You notice that in the north, there's this revolving door, and every king, almost every single king, he followed after the works of his father Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was 931. 931. Jeroboam, son of Nebat. They followed after the works of their father Jeroboam, son of Nebat, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they were buried with their fathers. They're judged for it. That's 200 years. What did Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, do? Remember 1 Kings 12, 25 to 33. Then Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam 1, son of Nebat, built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem then the heart of this people will turn again to the, their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see what he's doing? He's afraid. The irony of what Jeroboam did is that he's afraid, but God is the one that established his kingdom. God is the one that told him, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to make you king. As long as you follow after me, you'll live. God is the one that established his kingdom, and now he's afraid he's going to lose it, and he's going to die. So he has a fear of man, and he doesn't have a fear of the Lord. He doesn't understand who the Lord is. But here's the point. This is the DNA he baked into his culture. And for 200 years plus, they couldn't get it out. 200 years. The DNA of idolatry was baked into their nation, and no king deviated from it. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. But it is exactly what the Old Testament is showing us. Whether it's the king of the south in Uzziah, what's baked into his heart is sin. And he will find it one way or the other. And the kings of the north, it's not just that he set up two golden calves and that was then baked into the DNA of their, of their culture. That sin was baked into his heart first. That's what enabled him to set up the two golden calves. That's what was baked into the heart of king after king after king after king after king. Until they're ultimately judged. The entire thing, the, the kingdom of God, is coming in and invading the world and doing combat with the sinful hearts of men. That's what it's about. The whole thing. But it's not until we get to Jesus who is actually going to once and for all pay all penalties for sin. And it's at that point that God is going to place in the hearts of his people his very own spirit to dwell within them. So that they don't have to wonder what the will of the Lord is. That they can actually, they want to follow after the will of the Lord. That's what's got to change. He has to actually put in them a heart of flesh and remove the heart of stone. And that is by putting his spirit inside them. That's the only thing that will actually change this. No king has that ability. And no, no king has that until we get to Jesus. Does that make sense? This, the whole thing, every book, every book of the Bible is demonstrating that to you over and over and over again. Questions? So, two, a couple reasons. One is uh, 
Jehu's line was going to stay on there for four generations. So his fourth son gets on there, murdered. All right. So that's one reason is because the time had come to an end. The other is they're getting very close to judgment, and so the northern kingdom is very wicked. Now, we don't get, because they're on the throne for six months, uh, one month, and, you know, ten years we get a little more information about, but because they're on the throne for so short a time, we don't know too much about what what happened. No, what we do know is that these are, these are overthrows. These are coups. These are military coups. So frequently you find in unstable governments, you know, for the military that becomes the most powerful, you know, in the kingdom, they just don't want to follow after the king, and so they, they overthrow him. Well, one overthrow tends to lead to the next overthrow because, you know, you're on the throne a month. You, you haven't really, nobody really likes you yet, you know, so <laughs> you don't have to deal with the people. So the military becomes really powerful. Other questions? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to look into your word, um, to see what's going on there, and to understand that it is, it's only through you that we have forgiveness. And, and we continue even as Christians going to... Um, the well of sin time and again, um, every single one of us. And whether we recognize it or not, sins that we commit that we're not even aware we've committed, um, sins that we are very much aware that we commit, that we continue to pursue, um, we go after them time and again. And all of this reminds us that what we have in Christ is a Savior who has given to us forgiveness of sin. And to say that we're grateful is hardly enough, but we are, and it's all we've got, and we are incredibly grateful for the sacrifice that Christ has paid for us so that we might be brought into your kingdom as citizens, as sons and daughters, um, which is a, a, a life that, that we didn't deserve, we didn't um, merit on our own abilities, but you gave to us graciously, and we're grateful. We pray that that be a message that goes with us everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.